Anyway, I want us to give credit to the way our mind is arrayed because we don't have any good reason to expect that we should be very good at our feelings because we're <laughs> only 50,000 years into integrating our mind and our body. So it's good to know that the, the three big feelings that cause people most trouble in their lives, especially in their relationships, are anger, sadness, and fear. Yeah. And it's the inability to communicate about those that really causes the problem. Welcome to the Alcohol and Addiction Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol, and I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same, like right now. How you doing, folks? See my little money tree there? Dun, dun, dun. It's like I'm in the jungle. I'm in the jungle, baby! How's everybody doing out there? Just got out of the shower. Nice cold shower. It's very warm in LA here at the moment. And um, really excited to introduce my guest to you today, Gay Hendricks. Uh, Gay, Gay's had a, a massive, massive impact on Strive 1000 Day Sober. It's funny, isn't it, that there's people in the world that are absolutely clueless that they can have such an impact on society. Absolutely clueless. It's so interesting. And I'm really grateful that I got Gay on. Originally, I wanted him on after reading The Big Leap. I read The Big Leap and I thought that the concept of upper limit problems was so applicable to alcohol addiction that we had to include it in the Strive Method, right? So we got it in there, squeezed it in there. I'm like, I need to get this guy on the podcast to talk about upper limit problems in more detail. But when I got hold of him, his team said to me, hey, he's got this new book out called The Genius Zone. It's the first time I've downloaded a book and actually read it just straight away, boom, from start to finish. And I thought, this is amazing. It's covering his work on the zone of genius, which he talks about in The Big Leap. And you'll also found, or I found, in the uh, the book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which is another incredible book by uh, Jim Defner and uh, Kaylee Warner-Klemp and those folks, right? And the people at the Conscious Leadership Group, they swear by Gay Hendricks' work uh, and the, the HendricksInstitute.com. Amazing, amazing plethora of resources if you want to improve your life and improve your body and improve your uh, relationships. Uh, Gay is a, a bit of a relationship guru, right? So it's really good to get him on here, right? We talked about um, how you can live in your zone of genius and how this guy's been doing it for like a de uh, decade, five decades, right? So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get over there and check out his stuff. He's a top, top man. Um, and let me introduce you. So Gay Hendricks has been a leader in the field of relationship transformation and body-mind transformation for more than 45 years. He earned his PhD from Stanford in 1974, uh, and Gay served as a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Colorado for 21 years. Most of us have a book inside of us. Some of us are lucky to squeeze one out. Gay squeezed 40 of them out, including, as I said, The Big Leap, uh, most recently, uh, The Genius Zone, but also Five Wishes, and Conscious Loving and Conscious Loving Ever After, two books he wrote with his uh, mate and his, uh, his soulmate, if you like, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks. He's also, and I didn't know this, a mystery novelist with a series of books out featuring the Tibetan Buddhist private detective Tenzing Norbu. Bet you didn't see that one coming, right? And he also has a new mystery series featuring a Victorian-era London detective, Sir Errol Hyde. Gay has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and now the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. Get in there! His new book, The Genius Zone, is absolutely amazing. 
that was published a couple of months ago. Get on Amazon and get stuck into it. If you have any questions for me or for Gay, send me an email at 1kdaysober at gmail.com and we'll see if we can get them answered for you. Without further ado, I'll shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Gay Hendricks. So Gay Hendricks, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on a podcast. And we were just talking before we actually come on here. And I just want to stress this uh, for the listeners. It's last night I read uh, The Genius Zone in one sitting. I've actually never done that before with any book. And I just want to give you the compliment that I gave you before again so people can listen because I think it's really important. In this business that I'm in of helping people stop drinking alcohol and live a conscious life, there's almost like an inbuilt autonomic behavior of having to make things complicated. And (laughs) your books take that kind of like behavior and really distill it down into a really simple and powerful method and concepts which when I read it, I'm like, man, there's another reminder that life is not as difficult as we think it is. And here comes Gay to the rescue again. Well, I appreciate you singling that out because I actually spend a lot of my writing time trying to figure out how to say things in the simplest possible way. And actually, uh, I live across the street from a junior high school and I've been known to go over there and corral myself a room full of 14-year-olds to try to explain something to them to see if I I can explain it it to a 14-year-old. And so they've been very helpful to me. Yeah, I know there's there's one group of people in the world that take very simple things and make them extremely complicated. And then there's the rest of us that try to take complicated things and make them simple enough where you can really use them in your life. And I feel blessed to be in that crowd. I mean... I'm going to just put a pin in that a minute and come back to it because I, I want to make sure that the audience who have not read The Big Leap or have not got into any of your work, they understand the genius zone a little bit. So the book we're talking about now is The Genius Zone. Um, it was a really good kind of um, <laughs> almost like, I know it probably wasn't written like this, but a sequel to The Big Leap. It really felt like that to me because I hadn't long ago go read, read The Big Leap. So Um, Could you just explain the concept of the zone of genius? Because I think it's really important for people listening. Yes. Well, let me start with what I said in The Big Leap, which is basically, well, The Big Leap is about two main things. If you haven't read it, it's about how to stop what I call the upper limit problem, which is a tendency to sabotage yourself when you're getting more successful. And The second thing The Big Leap is about is about how to get into your genius zone, which I defined four different zones of daily activity. One zone is when you're doing stuff in your zone of incompetence, where you're doing stuff you're not any good at. You don't like it. You're not good at it. Somebody else could do it better. So hopefully by now, if you're listening to this podcast, you've eliminated some of those. Another zone people get trapped in is the competence zone, where you're doing stuff you're good at, but somebody else could do it just as well. A big trap also is a third zone I call the excellence zone, where you're doing stuff you're really good at, and even though you're making money at it probably or getting good appreciation for it, it doesn't represent this other part of ourselves, which I call your genius zone. Mm which is that part of yourself where you're doing what you most love to do, and you're also doing it in a way that makes the biggest contribution to other people around you. To me, that is living at its best. I've been privileged to 
live in that space for decades now. And I can mm. tell you that it has a, a type of exhilaration to it that you can't really find anywhere else in life that I know of. No, I love it. Thank you for that. Um, that description. Amazing. Um, one question I wanted to ask you on it was working with so many people who are using alcohol as a compensatory strategy to an underlying problem. Um, they're very, we're, we're, we uh, have been very good at blaming ourselves, criticizing ourselves, being judgmental. And, and stigma is a really important part of it. And that word genius, you know, <laughs> like, did you, did you contemplate it at a time and, and think to yourself, you know, this is the right word, but there's some people who are not going to be able to take that on because they feel that genius is Albert Einstein and not Lee Davy or Gay Hendricks. Yes, I, Lee, I really appreciate you saying that, Lee. <clears throat> I've been um, thinking about that for a long time, and I didn't actually think of that when I first used the word. I didn't think there would be a backlash to it like there is in some quarters. I'll always have somebody stand up in the back of the room, you know, if I'm talking to a room full of people and they will say, uh, you know, I've always been afraid of this whole genius thing. I don't think I'm a genius. And when I ask them about it, it'll turn out they knew a genius when they were kids, somebody with wild hair and bad habits and lived out on the edge of town. And so they, they took a negative fix on genius. But the way I look at genius is we've all got a spark of this inside because if everybody will just look inside and ask yourself, what do I most love to do? And how could I do more of that in my daily life? How could I bring forth the essence of that? Not everybody's going to write a book or write a symphony or whatever, but a mm. lot of people just need to know that they're, they have a spark of genius down in there. You know, and it might be like uh, one of my elders said when I was first learning, Abraham Maslow, he said, it doesn't matter if, if you're making a genius soup or writing a genius symphony, as long as you've got that part of you energized. Mm. And so that's what I'm looking for. And it's so important in the recovery field, because I don't know if you found this to be true, but I think people with addictions are often some of the most creative people. Mm. And oftentimes, they've gotten into drugs or drink or whatever their thing is, to kind of turn down the volume on this kind of wild creativity that they have mm. in there. But if you can harness that, if you can get in touch with that and head it in the right direction, rather than trying to distract it through drink or drugs or anything like that, you have a really powerful connection to the universe, the direct yeah. connection to the universe. And, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking before I got on this uh, conversation with you, Lee, uh, about my history with alcohol. And I probably have an unusual history in the sense that the first time I took a drink of it, when I went to college, I said, this stuff doesn't taste good. And this friend of mine who was an experienced beer drinker, he said, yeah, you just have to get used to that though. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I thought, I've heard that one. whatever else in life do you do that with, you know? Uh, and I decided not to get used to it, frankly. I decided to take the uh, the the lazy man's way out and just let somebody else uh, test that for me. But uh, and to this day, here fifty years later, I uh, I have yet to have more than half a beer. So I'm kind of a, a virgin when it comes to alcohol. Although I did grow my first pot plant when I was in college, also. So <laughs> I, I'm American, not a stranger. Yeah, 
I'm no stranger America. to altered states of consciousness. What did uh, a client of mine said the other day? He called it Californian California sobriety. I was like, what on earth is California sobriety? Anything but alcohol goes, <laughs> but no alcohol. I mean, that's amazing. I, I didn't know that about you. Um, but, but as I was reading the book, it was clear that you've had a lot of experience in your personally, in your family, but also you know, working with people who were using alcohol as a compensatory strategy. Um, and on your point around the wild creativity, uh, what I actually see in my community a lot is people who were tapped into their creativity at a very young age, and then they were stigmatized as being weird, abnormal, yes. basically not towing a societal conditioning line. So then their true self became really crammed down deep and this false self of fitting in emerged. And then it's only later when they stop drinking and we help them to rediscover their power in themselves that all that creativity starts go boosh, you know? Yes. You know, it's really interesting that a lot of times I've heard people say, I, I have a good friend that I play golf with all the time who has about 20 years of uh, sobriety. So he, he's gotten past his thousand days, but he tells me a lot of interesting things about the whole uh, mindset and everything like that. And he said that he didn't really find out what he was, what was causing him to drink until he stopped drinking. He didn't realize he, what he was drinking for until he yeah. stopped it. And then he got to find out how he was using the alcohol partly to turn down the volume on anxiety, but the anxiety was a lot of associated with his creativity too. Mm -hmm. And so I think human beings, we have all have a deep yearning, whether you call it genius or what, that's what I call it. But you have a yearning to bring forth the best of ourselves. We have this yearning, I think, that we want to do something that makes a difference in the world. Yes. And I think underneath any addict, they're going to find that wanting to offer themselves somehow to to the community. That's why I think 12-step groups and things of that nature are so important because they mobilize people as volunteers and contributors rather mm -hmm. than, I know there's a lot of paid alcohol mm -hmm. and drugs, but that's not what makes something like AA work. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's that community spirit. And when that gets, when that gets expressed in the right direction, there's real magic there. It could be super powerful. And I wanted to ask you your insight. On, you might need to ask me a few more questions. But as I was reading a book, I was thinking to myself, Lee, you got to 35 years of age, drinking from 14 to 35, towards the end of 35, drinking on a daily basis. You, everything like looked well. You had like a 20-year railway career. You're just a couple of positions down from managing director. You're earning good money, got a beautiful wife, beautiful son, got all your friends. And then you stopped drinking. And then all of a sudden, it was like someone had taken me out of the matrix or, or mm -hmm. taken my brain, removed it, put a new one in and said, no, no, no. Now we're going to just allow you to think. Mm. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't feel for another eight years, but I started to think very differently. And in very, very quick succession, I went from stopping drinking to quitting a 20-year career, a railway career, to traveling around the world, to doing everything that terrified me and thinking about why I was doing things. And I'd never done that. It was almost like on Monday, I was a drinker and I didn't do that. Tuesday, I stopped drinking and it happened and I can't make sense of it. I would love you to make sense of what happened to me when I stopped <laughs> drinking, Gay. Help me out. Well, 
You see, I think drinking, uh, although I haven't had extensive experience with it, it, it puts a layer between you and reality, like wearing a pair of fogged over glasses. And you see the world through that fogged over set of glasses. Uh, like a, a friend of mine that quit smoking after 18 years, he said, I felt like after two weeks, I felt like I'd, I'd had the flu for 18 years. And now I didn't have the flu anymore. And I think the day you stop drinking, you take those fogged glasses off and you see reality like it is for the first time. And it's good medicine. Yeah. Like you uh, said about that guy, right? Like you yeah. don't really know what is happening until you stop doing it. Yeah, exactly. And so I want people to feel that way all the time. I want people to be getting high on reality every second because, I mean, look, you know, one of my other books is called Conscious Luck. And we are one of nine million or so species on this planet. And we're the only one that can have a conversation on TV like you and I are yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and we're the only one that can ride around in our cars listening to this later. So let's celebrate that. That's just amazing that we've got these 9 million species, most of whom are bugs probably. And yet we landed in this fancy body that can have these wild conversations. So even if we did nothing else but celebrate that 28 hours a day, we'd be doing ourselves a good favor. Mm. Um, by the way, um, in preparation for writing the new book, uh, The Genius Zone, I did a lot of research on the origins of a certain idea that I think you'll get a kick out of. In the serenity prayer, the whole idea, of course, is to learn to recognize those things which you do have control over and which things you do not have control over and to let go of trying the control of of those that you don't have any control over and put your attention on the ones you do. So it's a, it's a remarkable concept. I mean, it's an mm. unbelievably expansive concept. But where did that come from? So if you go back about 2,000 years, there was this really exceptional philosopher named Epictetus, and his students collected a little book of his. And the first line says what's in the serenity prayer. It said, this goes back 2,000 years. It says, the secret of happiness is knowing there are some things you can control and knowing that there are some things you cannot control. And basically, he's saying the same thing is let go of trying to control those things you can't control anyway, like what people think of you and stuff like that, and put it on things you can control, like what you do for people or what you contribute. And I, that idea alone, look how many millions of people have been absolutely liberated by that idea and use mm. that idea every day. Well, I take it one step further in the genius zone. I take that out to the edge and I say, look into any situation that's giving you trouble, that's causing you to have a problem or what, however you want to say that. But just look any place where you're stuck and ask yourself the Epictetus question. Ask yourself, what am I trying to control here that's not within my power to control? That gets into what in the new book I call your genius move. It's, it's like a move is like, um, let's say you're driving down the street and you see a little sign that says detour and then you go off on another street and that gets you to the same place. But you didn't get there exactly like you thought you were going to get there. But life involves one moment after another of sort of being knocked off center and then having to re commit and get mm -hmm. back to the groove again. Mm 
That's why I always tell my clients to think of themselves as being like the autopilot on an airplane. You set it in Los Angeles, you're going to Honolulu, but it doesn't get there by being right on the beam 100% of the time. It drifts off and it says, okay, let's go back to the left. And then you lift, says, let's go back to the right. And let's go a little up. Let's go a little down. So it gets all the way to Honolulu by being wrong most of the time because it has a superpower which is the yeah. power of recorrecting, recommitting, getting back onto the groove again. And many people that stop drinking have a slip and have to make the commitment to start again. I have one friend that actually had 30 years of sobriety and then had a, a little slip, a half a case of beer slip, and then had to get back on. Unfortunately, he's now 10 years later, he's doing fine. But yeah. you never know, things are going to happen. You know, in his case, it was a shocking loss, a death of, a beloved person and it kind of sent him into a tailspin for two weeks. Mm. So, but what I'm getting at is don't think you have to be perfect. It's just your ability to correct and learn as you go along. You're not going to get there exactly in a linear direction. Yeah. That piece that I read last night was uh, quite profound to me. So we have a program called the Strive Method and it's a six month program. And the first three months, we're not, we don't want anybody to rush into stopping drinking because we believe that the best chance of success is to quit when you're ready. So the first three months is all about preparation. But at the end of that three months, we take a vow or a commitment. We get into the arena and we get, we get our gloves off, right? But this is where you've changed my thinking. I'm going to incorporate this into my program. What I found happens is inevitably most people will have a, a slip or a relapse or whatever you want to call it. And if we haven't dealt with the shame, the toxic internalized shame, they run to the hills. Like they, they actually leave the only support system they have that can get it through it. What I loved about your book was this, this concept of recommitting. So yeah, you're in the arena now. You're not in the stands no more. That is commitment. But now the work starts. And here is a key thing you said, and I'd like you to expand on it. You don't have to wait for a disaster to recommit. That was really important for me. Yes, learning how to recommit just when you're beginning to drift. That's part of the art of the yes. whole thing. Kind yeah. of catch the drift and make the shift. Catch the yes. drift and make the shift. That's what we teach in our seminars. And it's so important because many of us go into a despairing mindset if you have a slip. And then yeah. how do you get out of that despairing man? You do some more, you know, and and, yeah. um, and drink some more or take some more drugs but it gets into a downward spiral very quickly. But if you have a support system that understands slipping and recommitting, that's a really valuable thing to know how to do. Yeah. And when you were talking about what can we control, what can't we control? So there was two really big concepts that leapt out to me. One was negative thinking and the other one was creativity, i.e., negative thinking, taking up all this energy so there's no room for your creativity and actually getting rid of the negative uh, thinking so the creativity can flourish. So how, if people are listening and they've got that stinking thinking, um, what would your advice be to them to to work on this on a daily basis other than buy the book, of course? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, and by the way, if you do buy the book, I really encourage you to sit down with it for an hour and treat it just like a session with me because it's basically a transcript of different sessions I did, all kind of crafted into one thing. So it's designed to be like a one-on-one con- one-on-one conversation mm-hmm. with me. So um, 
somebody sent me a picture on Instagram the other day of them in a bikini on the beach reading the book, you know, said, no, don't read it in a bikini on the book, take it home and do it, you know. Uh, but uh, so one important thing is that if you look like, if you look into the lives of addicts or people who have an alcohol problem or whatever their particular approach is, you'll often find that one of the reasons they started doing the drugs or drinking too much is to quiet a certain type of voice in their mind, a certain type of critical voice that was going on. And when they drank, that voice went quiet for a while. And so that gets people addicted to whatever it is in a hurry, because if you've got some way of knocking out that, but the the voice is never going to go away until you stop the addiction for an hour or a day or whatever you can and have a, a conversation with that voice where you systematically let go of trying to control it. Mm. The reason it keeps yapping in your ear all the time is you're trying to will it away and it will not be willed away. Uh, it must be loved away. Mm. And in the most practical sense, the only thing that will quiet that inner critical voice is loving it as it is and understanding why it's there. In other words, opening your heart to it, not trying to control it. So interestingly enough, when you let go of trying to control your negative thinking, your negative thinking starts to disappear because mm -hmm. it's been forced to appear through an act of kind of clutching and hanging on on your part. But the moment you let go of that and experience all of that just fully and freely with an open heart, it has no reason to keep ganging up on you and torturing you anymore. You've already acknowledged it. You said hello mm. to it. You've loved it. You've been with it. You've accepted it as it is. And that's the one thing that it's allergic to, that critical voice. It just can't stand loving acceptance. And so it'll go away. Uh, yeah. But seriously, though, that's what it's really craving is that kind of inner loving acceptance from yourself. And until you can give that to all of yourself, there's always going to be something in you that troubles you. But until we can get that open-hearted sense of forgiveness about ourselves, we're always going to be beating up on ourselves. Now, you remember I told you that when I stopped drinking 11 years ago, I started thinking for the first time and I didn't start feeling until like eight years later, right? Yeah. So when I, when I listen to you say that, what comes up for me is the, the people I see who are unwilling to let go of that that negative thinking or to embrace that negative thinking, to love that aspect of themselves. What, what scares them is they have been programmed to spend all their time up here and they haven't been taught how to feel. And all yeah. of a sudden, because they have to accept and love this part of them, they have to experience anger. They have to experience joy. They have to experience fear. Um, so for people who are listening to this, who think they know how to do that, but like <laughs> most people like don't have a clue, what is what, what advice could you give to them about almost like feeling your feelings through to completion, I guess? We interrupt this broadcast to bring you important news. If you've been listening to Gay Hendricks and Lee Davy talk about zoning genius and you're thinking, what's all that malarkey? I need to get a bit of that. 
then contact me, Davy, at 1kdsober at gmail.com because he's a pretty good transformational specialist and he knows how to operate in his own genius. Right now, holding his nostril, making this noise, and doing this ad, that is his own genius. If you want a bit of this, then email him, 1kdsober at gmail.com. Now, back to Gay Hendrix. Yes, well, uh, I have conversations like this all the time where I'm helping somebody find their way into their body for the first time to feel yes, where their feelings yeah. are. Well, one thing I like to explain is that your body has three layers of feeling in different places in your body. Um, and if you look at, for example, when a person gets angry, you know, they've run tests where they wired them up and everything like when a person gets angry, a lot of the muscles fire up in their shoulders in the middle of their back and up their neck and out into their jaws, you know, where you're mm -hmm. yeah. just like an actor. If an actor were going to play an angry person, the actor would clench his fists or clench his jaws, you know, that kind of thing. Well, those areas all fire up when we get angry about something, just like when you get sad about something, Different things fire up more down in your chest, but sensations that let you know you're sad. And down in your belly are where a lot of signs of fear are located, mm. like butterflies and your digestion stops when you're scared. So, of course, you're going to have more sensation in your belly at that time. And the thing to, to know also is that our feelings have been around for millions of years longer than the thinking part of our mind. Mm. Our mind, uh, you know, that if you look at the way the brain is constructed, it's about the size of a grapefruit. And the outside, the rind of a grapefruit is about the same size as our modern cortex thinking brain. But the rest of the grapefruit, that's been around for millions and millions mm. and millions of years, long before we could say they, you know, like, uh, a modern thinking thing that's only been around for 10, 20,000 years is, wow, what if I put some seeds in the ground and then watch what happened? Maybe put some water on it and watch what happened. Well, that's a cool idea, but people didn't think about that until really recently, yeah, you know? Yeah. And uh, uh, before that, it was millions of years of just finding berries wherever they were growing and um, spearing a a buffalo whenever you could and that kind of thing. So anyway, I want us to give credit to the way our mind is arrayed because we don't have any good reason to expect that we should be very good at our feelings because we're <laughs> only 50,000 years into integrating our mind and our body. So it's good to know that the three big feelings that cause people most trouble in their lives, especially in their relationships, are anger, sadness, and fear. Yeah. And it's the inability to communicate about those that really causes the problem. Around here, we teach uh, relationship seminars. And one of the things we do is we teach people how to communicate their emotions in the most simple, straightforward way. Like, I'm scared, or I feel sad, or I feel angry right now. You don't have to beat on the table and or bash anything to say I'm angry. And in fact... <clears throat> Most people, once they learn how to communicate their feelings in a straightforward way, don't feel the need for as much drama about their feelings. Because, you mm -hmm. know, like my wife and I have the same feelings as everybody else, probably. But we get together now and then we say, hey, I felt irritated by something the other day. Or I felt, uh, I felt sad the other day when we were talking about that, that, that. Or it's, you want to be just aware of the wholeness of yourself. 
Like uh, one of my favorite poets, Walt Whitman, said, I am large and contain multitudes. We are large and contain multitudes. We have Mm. anger, sadness, fear, excitement, sexuality, joy, all of these things in the wholeness of ourselves. And uh, do you uh, remember a a dear friend of mine, John Bradshaw? Did you ever read one of his books? Yeah, I read um, Healing the Shame That Binds You. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, he was a dear friend of mine. And I wanted to acknowledge him because he really, for the first time, talked about shame openly. Mm. Uh, Nobody else had really. And when I first started reading that and looking at that, I was saying, John, do you really think enough people feel shame to write a whole book about it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that one, Gay. We'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to uh, put that one in frame, I think. Put that right up there with the guy 50 years ago that listened to the Beatles and said, I don't <laughs> yeah. think we'll sign them because guitar music is going out of fashion. Yeah, I like it. I like that one, Gay. I love it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, opening up, that opened up a whole new world for me because I used to be a very intellectual person. I didn't think beneath my neck. And mm. I had the body to show for it. I was very overweight and everything. Now I'm not. But fortunately, I learned to feel those feelings instead of eat those feelings. Mm. Um, why I got fat early on in my life, among other reasons, was I would get lonely. And then I would stuff myself with food to make myself feeling lonely. And then I would wake up feeling miserable and having gained three or four pounds. And, but that at least gave me something to feel miserable about then, you know, I wasn't just going around and feeling miserable. So uh, then I had a good excuse for feeling miserable. So I lost a whole bunch of weight about 50 years ago, actually. And um, so um, that really taught me the value of, of this thing that we're, we're really calling commitment and recommitment because a Mm. thousand times over losing all that weight, I w- would get tempted to, you know, kind of fall off my diet or eat something that wasn't good for me. And sometimes I did it. That's how mm. I came up with that whole idea of the upper limit problem. I would lose five or 10 pounds and then I would have, you know, um, ice cream the banana, or the, uh, the banana Sunday incident yeah. in the book. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. still, that's like yesterday to me. I can remember that. Yes. If you haven't read the book yet, I'd lost 30 or 35 pounds and I was so happy feeling so good. And I was walking by Brigham's ice cream in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I, God bless them. I hope they're still there. Um, <laughs> but in the window, I see a family digging into this gigantic banana split, you know, three flavors of ice cream, butterscotch, chocolate, caramel sauce, whipped cream, the whole works, banana. And I went in and I said, give me one of those and uh, sat down. And actually, the clerk, I remember, looked over my shoulder like, where's the rest of your party, sir? You're not going to eat that. <laughs> That's mine. Yeah, but that was mine. And uh, But what happened, it taught me an eternal lesson because I devoured this ice cream sundae and uh, banana split. And then about 20 minutes later, after about 20 minutes of sugar ecstasy, I got the worst stomachache in my life. I felt like I had a stomachache plus the flu. And it really taught me a lesson about how we do the upper limit problem. You know, we get to a certain Mm. degree of feeling good and then just can't handle it anymore. So I've been working on for the last 50 years, increasing the lengths of time that I let myself feel good and enjoy a flow of love and abundance. And Mm. so that's what I recommend for everybody is get on that program. Well, you're looking very good, Gay, I'll say. Um, the fear part of it that you talked about, you know, the anger, sadness, and fear, 
there was a part in your book that I read that was uh, really spoke to me. You know, like I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I just had a coaching client before I came on to you. He's going to be listening to this. We spoke about it. He's really looking forward to, to speaking to, to listen to it. And um, he he's trying. He's made a commitment not to drink. But then he had a drink, so then he's now making recommitments, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason he had a drink was his friend came in and said, hey, come on and have a drink. Like he's, had a, he's got a joint. He's like, come and have a drink. And in that moment, in that moment, what he could have, could have done a variety of different things. But one thing he could have done, he says, no, I don't drink with such sense of pride with your shoulders up. But he didn't because mm -hmm. of fear. And what I liked, I remember you saying in the book that you was nervous about going on stage and having a little shake in your voice and the way you dealt with it was to go on stage and say to the audience i'm nervous and i have a shake in my voice and the shake disappeared and yeah. i i try to get that across to people we have to do it in a very sensitive way but it's very unusual for someone who's got a problem with alcohol to get through the shame to actually speak the truth and regret that they did it it generally that that um that relief you talk about that that yeah. that energy flow, that freedom, that weightlessness, you know. So I just wanted to touch upon that. I thought it was a beautiful moment in the book. Well, thank you. I actually remember that something else very vividly during that year. I was losing all the weight fifty years ago. I had lost, but I don't know if people know this from other books I've read. But uh, I I was sort of born into a weight problem in the sense that my father died during my mother's pregnancy, and my mother stopped eating for a number of months and. Uh, so she actually lost 30 pounds during her pregnancy with me rather than gaining weight, which most mm. people do. And the, they think her starvation threw off some kind of thyroid or pituitary reset in my body so that I gained weight very easily, pretty much from the moment I arrived here. And yeah. I was the only fat person in a skinny person's family. And so there was something obviously wrong with me because I was eating the same food they were. And yet I was just packing on tons of weight. And so I was taken around to all sorts of different specialists, but it never really got handled until I was uh, 24 years old. And so I had a spiritual experience, a wake-up experience, where I realized I wasn't my fat, I wasn't my feelings, I wasn't, I was more than all of that, that I was a spiritual being at the bottom of everything and at the center of everything. And from that place, I decided to reinvent my life. And so one thing I started doing was just eating only food that I felt fed my spiritual nature rather than my old mm. 100 pound overweight body. And so within a year, I lost 100 pounds, but I didn't do it linearly because there was this one moment, well, the banana split moment, but then later on, I'd lost maybe 50 pounds and I was feeling better than I'd felt in years. And so a friend of mine from Florida, I was living in New Hampshire at the time, and a friend of mine from Florida stopped in and he had two things. He had some hash, hashish, and uh, he, he also, he saw that I had lost this weight and I was exclaiming about the weight and everything. And so as a practical joke, what he thought was a practical joke, he went into town and brought back a five pound box of chocolate caramels, which he happened to know was my very favorite thing. And it was purely, and he was extremely overweight himself. Right. And he and I had, you know, he used to eat together and go to ice cream shops together and stuff like that. And we worked at the same place. But anyway, he, um, and I did, I ended up eating a couple of the caramels and then I felt really sick. 
But what I did later, I decided I didn't want that kind of energy around my house. And I actually had to ask him to leave because he had a buddy with him that his buddy was, you know, had all the hash and everything. And so finally, that was a big move for me. It was saying, even though I was your friend, I'm in a different place now. And I choose not to be around that kind of energy. And that to me was a significant moment because normally I would have just out of old time's sake and stuff like that, kind of gone along with it and slipped back into my old pattern. And I, I consider that a moment of real individuation, though, because it was a time of, of saying no for the right reason. It wasn't saying no for the wrong reasons. It was saying no because I prized the state I was in so much that I didn't want to interfere with this new state by fogging anything over again. I'd gotten to the place where it felt so good that I didn't want to mess it up anymore. And that's what awaits people, I think, out there. That's worth getting to that place. Yeah, I would I would just uh, advise everybody who's running around the block now listening to this <laughs> to stop it and rewind it and play it again, particularly if you're struggling with an addiction, right? Particularly with alcohol, because, you know, the, there's a lot of reasons why people drink, but in my work, you can distill it down to some several key factors. One of these key factors is status, you know, like the outside in game. It matters to me what gay thinks of me and my friends thinks of me and my mom thinks of me more than what I think of me. So when people start to think about quitting drinking, very often they're in, they're surrounded by toxic people and they spend time in toxic environments. And then they start to think, well, or I start to give them advice that, well, maybe we need to change that. And then the thought goes into scarcity and lack. I am losing something if I mm, do that or, mm -hmm. or people are going to judge me if I do that. Listening to you, it sounded like you weren't losing anything. You was gaining something. Like you mm -hmm. went at it like, I'm sure you went through the whole saying kind of, what are these people going to think of me type of thing. But the fact that you went through with it, knowing that you was more important and you had bigger things to do in the world, it doesn't make us a bad person. And I think that's what stops a lot of people from even starting. Yes. Uh, uh, just out of curiosity, uh, what is the name of your program? I heard it at the beginning, but I've forgotten it. It's called the Strive Method. Strive. strive. Okay, yeah. Strive. And how does that interf interface with 12-step work and that kind of thing, or does it? It doesn't. It's different. It's like a non-12-step like non option okay. uh -huh. based, okay. based, based on all the mentors you included that teach me stuff that is not in the book, which uh -huh. I then teach people. So, for example, our um, evolution phase of the Stride Method is our post-recovery. So what I see a lot of, uh, a lot of um, the sobriety uh, companies or coaches fail to do is they help people stop drinking, mm -hmm. but they don't deal with the underlying root cause and they don't give them tools or an ongoing support system to the rest of their life so yes. i actually your material and i've read a lot of your material in the um the 15 commitments of conscious leadership it actually could be the whole evolution like you could have written my evolution program because what you're doing is you're helping people get to the root cause of their problems and learn to live consciously yes. um, which is really important it really is and interestingly enough I want to return to the subject of creative and creativity because mm. in thinking of, of people I've known that were 
well, of people that uh, struggle with alcohol that I've known, one of the things that I think every single one of them has is they're all special in a certain way. They have something special about them that they can contribute. And if you can learn to find that special thing, you know, like I have a friend who um, is toward the end of his life now, but he is probably sponsored. Well, I know he sponsored at least 600 people. Mm. Uh, I haven't seen him in a number of years, but he sponsored so many people and uh, has had, has such a great network of people that he as, has, you know, counseled and helped and that kind of thing. I mean, if you think about what it means to sponsor 600 people or to help 600 people, you're not just helping 600 people. You're talking it's about hundreds of thousands of. It's their families, right? Yeah. And, and their, their families' families and people they work with and friends and everything. Yes. And so using him as an example, he has this genius for connecting people. Mm. Mm. And yet he didn't even realize that until he did some work. We did some work many years ago to help him find that in himself and trust that and bring that forth. And it's such, it almost, I always like to say your genius is hidden in plain sight because many people, <laughs> I'll have a 10 minute that. conversation with them and we'll go from, I'm no genius to, oh, wow. That's my genius. Yeah. You know, in 10 minutes. So it doesn't take long. You don't have to rent a cave in Tibet or paddle a canoe to Tahiti or anything like that. In fact, uh, you appreciate this probably. Uh, here we do a one day program where corporations will send their CEO uh, to me for a day and I work with them all day long, very intense day long. But the very first thing I, I do with them is they go into a room by themselves for 10 minutes and simply ask themselves, hmm what do I most love to do? Mm. And we have a certain procedure where they ask the question and then they take three easy centered breaths and then they ask the question again. And so for 10 minutes, all they're doing is focusing on finding out what they most love to do. Mm. And I'll tell you, people sometimes come out of that room and they say, I got it. I got the whole value. I got the whole $25,000 worth and it's not even 10 past nine, you know, because they've had for the first time a connection with their inner world in there where they've trusted themselves enough to ask, hmm, what is my genius? What do I most love to do? What makes the biggest contribution to people's lives that what I do? To me, that's sacred territory. That's, mm. that's territory that every human being needs to open up. Happiness, I will go so far as to say your happiness depends on your ability to open up the flow of your genius and get your unique abilities being used in the world. Mm, I love that. I want to add a story onto that just to accentuate that the genius with there's a genius within every single one of us and it doesn't have to be complex, right? You just gave a good example. I want to give another one. When I stopped drinking, I entered my first ever coaching program of any sort. It was Jack, one of Jack Canfield's programs. Mm. And his coach was working with me and she was working on meaning and purpose. And I remember being in floods of tears because I was 35 years of age and I didn't have a clue what it was I was supposed to do. And I thought I was a failure. And uh, this lady, God bless her, she was saying to me, look, just write me a list of what you're good at or what you enjoy doing. And don't think about it too much. And do you know one of the things I wrote? One of the things I wrote was... <clears throat> 
I like talking. I like being in a room and being a center of attention. I like talking. I like talking about the things I've done. I like asking questions. I like doing that kind of stuff, right? And I just put it on there. And then after working with them over time, I ended up traveling immediately. I went from never leaving the country to going to 28 countries in five different continents, interviewing high stakes poker players, the best poker players in the world. And I created this podcast. So part of my genius is talking to people. And that came, and I discovered that by, as a child, just messing about and getting told off in class for talking too much. And you would never, ever have linked it to genius because genius in my upbringing was science or splitting the atom. And it doesn't have to be like that, Gay, does it? No. Like I say, it could be, like Maslow said, it could be a genius soup as well as a genius symphony. But I really love that story. First of all, uh, Jack and I have been friends for half our lives, probably. Uh, And uh, we kind of came of age at the same time. And I actually, I always kid Jack because I say, you owe it all to me because long before he wrote chicken soup books, he wrote a book called, I think it was called a hundred ways to raise self-concept in the classroom. And I was a professor at Stanford at the time, had just finished my PhD and was, I worked there for a year before I went off to the university of Colorado and they sent it to me to review the book. And is this worth publishing? The publisher sent it to me. And I said, oh, yeah, this is going to be a classic. If it doesn't sell 100,000 copies the first year, I'll eat it. And it turned out to do great and was a big bestseller for a long time. So anyway, wherever I see Jack, I say, you owe it all to me. You owe me. (laughs) It's genius chicken soup. But it's all, I love it. Yeah. He's actually been a guest on this podcast because- He's uh, a great guy. I love Jack so much. He and I go. Um, Yeah. And um, also- um, what was the other thing I was going to, you, you mentioned that I was going to highlight? Yeah, the creativity part is so important. Uh, oh, yeah, Eric Erickson, the great developmental psychologist at Harvard, said that mm. once you get to midlife, every moment is a choice between what he called generativity, which is basically creativity on a daily basis. He said every moment is a choice between generativity and stagnation. You're going to go with generativity or you're going to choose stagnation. And that choice faces right into us when we get, especially when we start getting up to those zero birthdays, like 40 or 50. Yes. And um, young sprouts like you may, may not uh, be in that uh, zone <laughs> I'm yet. 40, I'm 46. I'm getting there. I'm near, I'm near the big five. Oh, it's just around the corner. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Um, I guess if there's one thing I really want people to get from the Genius Zone, the new book, It's to know that you're getting these genius moments, these opportunities all day long Mm. to make your genius moves and open up more into what you're really here to do. I I feel so blessed that when I was 30, I think I was 37 or something like that, I actually, I heard something on the radio about somebody talking about their life purpose. And I realized I don't have one. Maybe I was like you in that conversation with uh, Jack's coach. And I did something kind of unusual. I went back to my apartment that I was living in at the time, and I just sat down in the corner on a cushion, and I decided to sit there until I had figured out what the purpose of my life was. And and it took me an hour or so. I tried on everything I could think of, but the final thing I came up with was what's in the big leap, which is that I expand every day in creativity, abundance, success, Mm. good health, I expand every day in those things as I inspire others to do the same. 
So I grow every day in abundance, success, creativity, as I inspire others. That became a central part. Yeah. And then I pick up your book and then I, I apply your principles into my community and then they do the same and the same and the same. And you, you've hit millions and millions of people. I mean, earlier on, you talked about the three big emotions of sadness, anger and fear. But when I think about this next emotion, I think of you as the, what's the word I'm looking for, the trailblazer, and that's joy. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people, when they think of joy, they just think, ah, yes, joy. <laughs> Let's just throw that one away. That's just easy. That's happiness. That's, that's great. But of course, with the upper limit problem, a paradox is thrown at us that is sometimes difficult to wrap your head around is, well, I've been programmed to believe that I will always want to achieve achieve more and more and more joy. But as you explain in The Big Leap, and I'd love you to expand upon it, we all have, and me and you probably have them in, in all our different areas now, but at different levels, an upper limit problem, which is preventing us from experiencing more joy. Yes. And, and I like the way when I was reading The Genius Zone, the addiction to suffering. And I thought to myself, those two seem to go dovetail very, very nicely if you want to expand on that. Yes. Well, when I first started catching on to all this way back, I realized I only had a limited tolerance for feeling good inside. And then I seemed to have some programmed conditioned need to mess it up. Mm. And in my relationship at the time, I, I had a girlfriend at the time and I noticed the same thing was happening there that we get along fine for a week or so. And then one of us would trash it by starting an argument. And then that would lead to one thing and the other. And then sometimes we'd end up spending a week or two kind of getting back together after the thing. And then we'd go through the whole cycle again. And so I realized I have an allergy to feeling good all the time. Mm. And I have an allergy to somehow connecting with people. And when I tuned into it, I realized, oh, I I could see instantly where it came from way back in my early days. And we can almost, if we put our minds to it for a few minutes, figure out where you got a particular pattern from, because they're not all that mysterious. So as I tuned into it, I realized I'd been doing that all my life. And I had an intolerance for feeling good because if Mm. I felt good, something bad was going to happen. And so, uh, and if you watch a movie, for example, like watch a James Bond movie. If you ever see James Bond having a good time in bed with the heroing hero and note it, just put your stop, you know, your stopwatch on it. Cause seven minutes later, a giant thunderbolt is going to come through the wall or a giant <laughs> 300 pound mechanical device. That's and, so uh, true. Yeah. And so we expect these upper limit things they are wired in almost. So here's what you have to do to get out from under that. You have to make a commitment to increasing the time you spend feeling good and having good times in your relationship. That's Mm -hmm. the key first move. Make a commitment to that. That says to the universe and to your body, okay, we're interested in learning how to tolerate more good feeling. So let's send more good feeling toward him and let's, let's see if we can expand him that way. So you always get what you're asking for in this amazing universe of ours. It's just that what we're usually asking for is unconscious stuff that we've forgotten we were asking for 48 years ago. And it's down there busily asking for it and we don't know it. And so, uh, so what we need to do is develop an addiction to feeling good Mm -hmm. organically. 
rather than feeding our feeling good with some, some sort of unnatural substance. And the thing is, we already have plenty of space and plenty of bliss wired into us already, but most of us don't spread out into it and feel it because we're clutched up around more um, negative feelings like fear, anger, and sadness. We haven't let, ah, let go into those and let ourselves feel those fully so we don't ever get to that other very spacious place that only get, gets gotten to when we accept all of our other feelings. Mm-hmm. See, I don't think happiness is a feeling like the other feelings. It's an overall feeling of how you feel about all your other feelings. If you're expanded into and lovingly embrace your anger, why, that's a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. you know? And if you're expanded into and love your sadness, ah, that's beautiful. Same thing with fear. Same thing with sexuality. A lot of us get clutched up in an early age around our sexuality and don't learn to fully spread out into it fully and become the full sexual beings we're capable of. Mm. So we're all of these amazing multitudes, just like Walt Whitman said. And a lot of the delicious stuff we have to get through by opening up to the undelicious stuff. See, um, Lee, one of my mentors, Jack Downing, told me early on in life, he said, human beings make a mistake, a fundamental thinking error in thinking there's one faucet that's marked pain and one faucet that's marked pleasure. And the trick is to keep the pain faucet turned off and the pain faucet ratcheted up. He said, but it's impossible because there's only one faucet and it has awareness marked on it. And <laughs> you either turn that up and take what you get, or yeah. you keep it turned off and take what you get. And so it's like I used to have a mountain cabin, and when I'd get there after a few months, I wouldn't be there. I'd turn on the water faucet, and it would go blah, 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 and blow out all this uh, brown, rusty stuff. And But, you know, it would start being a nice spring Uh, mountain spring water after a minute or so. And the same thing is true for us, that if we can open up and let ourselves accept all of those things that we've tried to reject in ourselves, if you can open up and and learn to accept and love all of those things, why, that's this magnificent, spacious, open-hearted way of coming at life. And good things come into your life when you come at life that way. Okay, let's end it there. I thought it was a beautiful ending. Um, I just want to say thank you for the work that you've done and your dedication. Your books uh, have changed my life and have changed the lives of everybody who is touched in my network and on and on and on. So keep on doing the great work. For people listening, how is the best way for them to get hold of you? I know the Genius Zone, go buy it, all these other books, go buy it. But how can they uh, get hold of you and learn more about your work? Yes, the best place is just go to Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. Katie and I uh, had one of the very first websites when the internet was first <laughs> put up. So we get a big kick out of doing things on the web. And in fact, we just started a big course, a worldwide course called Reweaving the World, where we have mm. hundreds of people around the world taking a course for a year where we're working on 
reconnecting after the pandemic and how to reconnect in a more conscious way. So we do all sorts of things like that. And they all serve that one main purpose, though, of helping people get in touch with their genius and bring it forth in the world. So yeah, go to Hendrix.com. We also have a a thriving uh, charitable foundation called the Foundation for Conscious Living. You can Mm. find that on the web too. It does all sorts of useful things in the world and give scholarships and things. So uh, check that out, please. And I'd also just like to say before I let you go, I've done a lot of training in the last 18 months and I've been in a lot of modern, quote unquote, modern programs. They are all using your work as a backbone or near backbone. So Mm -hmm. to remain as innovative and creative and on the trend of that wave as you have for all these years, amazing, amazing. Amazing human being, Gay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Brings a tear to my eye, actually. I appreciate being seen that way. Um, I um, I work every day. I, I hope I never have to retire. <laughs> <laughs> you won't I, be I made, his own genius if you retire in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, uh, I sleep from... Uh, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. And I, I never use an alarm clock, but I always wake up bright and early and excited about what I'm working on because mm. uh, I get to live in my genius zone uh, pretty much uh, 18 hours a day. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you for spreading that uh, genius to us today and uh, keep doing the good work. We'll catch you later, Gay. Stay in touch. Many blessings to you, Lee. We all want to find the right woman. We all want to find the right man. We all want to find the right job. We want to find the right friends. We want to live long and prosper. We don't want to worry about money. We don't want to fight. We want to be the best parents, husbands, wives, daughters, sons, employees, employers, and leaders that we can be. We all want these things to a certain degree. And if you want them, I have a tip for you. Change your relationship with alcohol. It will be the spark that ignites everything. I promise you, if you can reduce the negative impact that alcohol has on your life, all of these things are available for you. So let us help you. Do not do this alone. Email me, 1kdaysober at gmail.com to join our Strife family today.